You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. Today's SpyCast is brought to you by our friends at Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon is reinventing men's basics, smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Thank you for your continued support of SpyCast. We're joined today by Nate Jones, who's the director of the Freedom of Information Act project for the National Security Archive. He oversees the thousands of Freedom of Information Act and mandatory classification review requests and appeals that the archive submits each year. A two-term member of the Federal FOIA Advisory Committee and board member of the American Society of Access Professionals, he acts as a liaison between archive analysts and agency FOIA offices, and serves as the archives FOIA counselor to the public. He's also editor of the archives blog Unredacted, where he writes about newly declassified documents and FOIA policy. He's authored the archives past eight government-wide FOIA audits. He earned his MA in Cold War history from the George Washington University here in DC, where he used FOIA to write his thesis on the 1983 Able Archer nuclear war scare. He's also produced the Able Archer 83 source book, the comprehensive declassified collection of documents on the 1983 nuclear war scare. His book, which is out now, is Able Archer 83, The Secret History of the NATO Exercise That Almost Triggered Nuclear War. It examines the intersection of Cold War animosity, nuclear miscalculation, and government secrecy. Welcome, Nate. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. My pleasure. So I actually remember reading your master's thesis when it was posted in 2009, I believe. And I was very interested in it because my it intersects with my research. I also remember thinking to myself, this would make a really great book. So my question is, what took you so long? Uh-huh. Well, um, it actually wasn't what took me so long. It was what took the government so long to release the documents. Uh, essentially, uh, I started this way back as an undergrad. Um, at that point, in memoirs and other books, there would be one sentence or one paragraph mentions of this thing that we'll talk about later called Able Archer 83, the unknown nuclear catastrophe that affected President Reagan. And so I started writing, uh, but there was no primary sources. It was all memoirs and things that you couldn't check out. So then uh, I went to the archives, the presidential libraries, and started digging around. But I found out that where the information should be about Able Archer 83, this war game, um, there was sheets that said withdrawn, restricted, you can't see it. So I remembered, I, I went to the archivist and essentially said, well, um, is there a way to get this declassified? Or can I see it? I think we have the right to know. And he essentially kind of laughed at me. <laughs> and that actually got me angry. Um, 
and I started looking into how to get classified stuff declassified and learned about the Freedom of Information Act um, and where the best place that had the best information about how to win your Freedom of Information Act abbreviated FOIA fights was the National Security Archive. So um, I got hired on as an intern there, and luckily they haven't got rid of me yet. <laughs> but the irony is, is that if they, if the place that I had uh, filed this request initially would have just given me the dang documents, I would have got out of the business, <laughs> done my research, and not helped file thousand. Uh, over a thousand more every year. They pissed off the wrong guy. They apparently. did. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about it, but the key document, just to loop back, uh, actually took a 12 year fight. So the reason, real, real reason is why is the book out now is because we finally won its release. Yeah, it was what, October of last year of 2015. Yep. They finally released this massive document that gave you really good insight into yeah. this period we're talking about. Yeah, and so there's a story, there's a meta story. I don't know. <coughs> I don't know if we want to go which route we want to go down first or at, or at all. So let me take a step back then, because one, one of the great things about this case, Able Arch 83 is not brand new. It's something, like you said, has been written about before in memoirs, has been talked about by some of the participants. But really the issue has been debated for over two decades. How important, how dangerous was this? Some have said, oh, it's nothing, it's just no big deal. Others have said this is a really big, you know, big issue. And your book really kind of sets to answer that question. But another thing on the, on the on the FOIA access side, one thing that really tickled me, and, and because I've dealt with these situations before, I most important document I thought I'd ever found, I turned a page and it's like next seventy five pages redacted <laughs> in full, and I wanted oh, to set brother. the archives on fire. So yeah, I didn't say that out loud, but I know the feeling, and yeah. let the National Security Archive know, and we'll file. Oh yeah, absolutely. MDR for you. Um, when you FOIA'd the NSA about Able Archer eighty three, they did something quite NSA like. What what did they do? Yeah, that was one of the most um, insulting FOIA <laughs> responses I've ever gotten. Uh, they took, first of all, they took about over a year to respond, um, but their response was a letter saying uh, we've identified 82 documents, 81 are denied, the good ones that I still haven't gotten yet, and you can have one. And that was a printout of a Wikipedia article on Able Archer 83 that they had classified and then spent the time and money to review to unclassify this uh, classified Wikipedia article. And, and the worst was, is I was one of the editors of the article. So I already <laughs> don't know the stuff. So that, so that was disappointing. But in the end, uh, the documents tend to get out and we've gotten thousand, over a thousand, maybe over 2,000 documents able to actually three. Um, but there's, the fight still goes on as well. The great part though, is now you have this Wikipedia document that you edited that has a classification stamp yeah. on it which is just, it's so wonderfully typical for yeah. the U.S. government in this case. Well, for the listeners to understand this time period, guess, we do have... Um, somewhere, yeah. Thomas Drake's probably laughing because yeah. according to some con constructions, I could have been uh, in possession of improperly classified information despite it being written before ever actually being cla retroactively classified. That's a well, let's hope joke, no one that but... matters is listening to this right now because uh, <laughs> we, we need you where you are. Um, a lot of our listeners are not people have, who were alive in 1983. They may not remember this time period. They may not have taken a lot of this history in, in, in their coursework. Let's take a walk a little bit behind before 1983 and talk about some of the U.S. policy because it began to change pretty dramatically. And, and unlike some of the rhetoric, it wasn't Reagan necessarily that began this change. It actually starts during the Carter administration where the United States becomes much more confrontational with the Soviet Union. Sure. 
So uh, the the well, I would I'll name two big catalysts. The first was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, um, essentially ended detente, which was when the two superpowers between uh, Nixon and Ford and Brezhnev had uh, improved relations, signed a lot of treaties, uh, essentially balanced out. Um, but with the the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, think Rambo three, uh, ended that uh, and essentially began to usher in or ushered in what um, the best historian I think calls the era of renewed confrontation. The second um, is the nuclear issue, and um, that includes Presidential Directive fifty nine, um, which uh, came in the Carter administration and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, essentially provided a more aggressive nuclear posture for the U.S. with more options, including more early strike options. Um, and that plays a role uh, later in, in, in Abel Archer in the 1983 war scare. Um, and check out the National Security Archives website for all the documents. And Tons of the documents. That. And that's a little response to the, the Soviet uh, SS-20 scare where they began to field uh, what were called Euro missiles after the fact of these medium range and intermittent range ballistic missiles that could strike most of Europe within just minutes. Yeah. So essentially there was, I'll oversimplify and say nuclear parity, but um, the Soviet Union, like the US, uh, had missile factories that wanted to build new missiles and missile engineers that wanted to get paid to build new missiles and their own in industrial military complex and they upgraded their missiles to the SS-20s and later uh, later on they, uh, there's Politburo documents with uh, Politburo members admitting that upgrading was a mistake but by upgrading to these SS-20 missiles that essentially were better than NATO's missiles in Europe uh, the Soviets had a new nuclear advantage in Europe and, and, and I'm just going to work. Reagan yep. essentially took Carter's policies yep. and kept them moving, expanded upon them somewhat. You know, he ran on the idea that the United States had declined during the Carter years. Uh, and whether or not that's true, Reagan took it to the next level. I mean, I think he, the largest peacetime military yep. increase in history yep. in the United States. And, and this combines with many of his advisors would be considered hardliners in many in many cases people who were not willing to negotiate with some the Soviet. Are, some of them are still around today and they yeah. tell you with pride yes i am and so you almost look at during the eisenhower years there's a policy that was abandoned very quickly known as rollback the idea of not just containing communism but actually pushing it back and reagan seems to have readopted that mentality yes um especially so but as I write, and um, I, I take a lot of this actually from um, the Soviet ambassador Dobrynin, uh, but strain, absolutely yes, but there, he was also at the same time that he was increasing the U.S. military buildup, adding dangerous new nukes, and the rhetoric, we can talk about that, mm -hmm. not to mention the rhetoric, at the same time he was doing that, he also was a genuine nuclear abolitionist. Um, so he really was working on two things, often at cross purposes, but no doubt he uh, ramped up uh, the Carter administration's um, animosity and buildup against the Soviet Union, um, especially with the placement um, that 
Carter had initiated, but Reagan finished and worked hard to finish it, and it was no easy feat to put these new uh, Pershing II and Griffin Cruz missiles in Europe, um, which also further altered the balance of power and uh, could, by Soviet estimates, decapitate them uh, within 10 minutes, Right, they thought. Let, let me... Let me talk to you about something that I think our listeners will find very interesting, and that's the the impl- imposition of psychological operations against the Soviet Union during yeah. the Reagan administration. This is something that doesn't get talked about enough. Yeah, uh, it wasn't just rhetoric; it wasn't just increasing spending. He was actually really trying to mess with the heads yeah. of the Soviet leadership, and some of the stuff they did, uh, which can incredibly reckless today. Can you talk a little bit about the psyops? Well, yeah. Um... So you can make the argument that some of the things that Russia is doing today with their buzzing of ships in the Baltic Sea, uh, their flyovers of Estonia, uh, actually is, is similar to uh, what the U.S. was actually doing in 1983. Um, I've read uses and misuses of history, and I, and I don't want to go too far, but I just want to, the, the similarities are striking, although opposite sides are doing it. So in 1983, um, there are accounts of bombers flying uh, right at Soviet radar and switching off as soon as uh, they became in, ra- in range, which that, more than anything else, or that uh, contributed to the KL shootdown. Um, there are huge naval demonstrations of essentially showing that uh, NATO, or especially the U.S. Navy, could secretly uh, essentially destroy the Soviet Union if they wanted to. Um, let's see here. Well, I mean, you're, you're looking at things that are the simulated air attacks, probing air defenses. Yes. I mean, these are things that you do in preparation for war. You know, uh, this is practice, this is seeing what you can get away with in many respects. Right. Uh, practice bombing runs yeah. over uh, the Soviet Union's uh, Pacific Islands um, on territory that they claimed was theirs. Um, so, yeah. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Well, I think what was interesting was it's not just it made them worried or made them worry that the United States was going to attack, but it did reveal Soviet vulnerabilities, yes. too. Because, like you said, there were times when the U.S. Navy was able to move from one point to the other and not be seen at all, including from Soviet satellites and Soviet intelligence. So this had to scare them a little bit as well. They're vulnerable. Their uh, radar, the U.S. learned, uh, was not good um, in a great corollary to my book is David Hoffman's Billion Dollar yep. Spy, and part of the what he talks about is, is how they found out that the radar wasn't good. Right, Adolf Tokachev. Billion yep. Dollar Spy. Yeah. Um, and their satellites were failing one after another, so their early detection satellites did not work well. Um, they were vulnerable, and Andropov uh, actually ordered a... He got tired of these penetrations, and uh, according to the CIA source... Uh, cited in the book, uh, ordered a shoot-to-kill order for all planes that may be penetrating. Yeah. 1983 was a pivotal year in the history of the Cold War, and some would argue, and there's somebody sitting in front of you that would argue, that it's potentially more dangerous for civilization than 1962. Um, But it's important to understand what happened that year, specifically leading up to Able Arch 83, in order to fully appreciate the magnitude of that situation. Like you mentioned, the end of detente, Mm-hmm. which means they're no longer trying to live peacefully. Reagan's rhetoric, this is the year he says the Soviet Union is the evil empire. He talks about the Soviet Union should be on the ash heap of history. Yes, it's just talk, but Reagan was somebody that looked like he was kind of standing up for his talk. There was also, and I want to ask you about this and the impact of this, 
Reagan's announcement of a new program called the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, or popularly known as Star Wars. How did this have the potential of changing the balance of power? Well, uh, essentially, the Soviet Union, I think the, the historical evidence shows, uh, could not do another spiral of the arms race. They had essentially kept up with the United States until 1983, but if the arms race were to go to space, which they viewed Star Wars as, they did not view it as Reagan, I think genuinely did altruistically view mm -hmm. it as some, he said at Reykjavik that he would share the technology and the Soviets didn't take him up on it, maybe didn't believe it, but they essentially thought that it was, um, to use the drop of quote, uh, taking the arms race into space. And they feared, one, that they couldn't afford doing that themselves, their satellites barely worked, and two, that it uh, would make all of the anti-ballistic missile treaties and other things moot and make them vulnerable. So the mutually assured destruction that they had kind of worked towards and the, the idea of deterrence, uh, they viewed SDI first and foremost as a chess move to uh, trump this idea of, de of deterrence that was the status quo. Well, in MAD is an interesting concept because you've already talked about this idea that the deployment or the planned deployment of the Pershing 2s and the Griffin cruise missiles into Europe basically throws MAD out the window as it is because of a concept during the Cold War that had developed about nuclear strategy called launch on warning. And this is something that dramatically changes the way people viewed the potential impact of nuclear weapons because you needed early detection and preemption in order to survive. Because now you're looking at minutes, not 30 minutes, not two hours. You're talking about five minutes if it's launched from Europe before you could decapitate the entire Soviet hierarchy. What this means, of course, is that you need top intelligence. You need correct intelligence. You need to know if someone's about to do this to you. Right. So um, essentially... Uh, the idea is is that there may be some way to survive a nuclear attack, and that way is if before, if when you learn the enemy is going to launch nuclear weapons at you, if you launch all of yours first before the enemy launches theirs, and it's scary to think about. Yeah. Um, today, I believe the president has made public uh, the U.S.'s current nuclear policy and. What I believe that is, is also scary, it's launch under attack. So today, uh, both sides will be destroyed, but will be destroyed slightly first and vice versa. Uh, but uh, a corollary to this is launch on warning, which yeah. was what um, both sides, especially the Soviets, were well aware of, and uh, I have evidence in the book, uh, was their nuclear strategy in 1983. And that is, when there is warning of attack, launch first with the hope of wiping out the other side and surviving yourself. Um, I mean, to get wonky, to, so is mutually yeah. assured destruction. Right. To get wonky, this is really counterforce strategy. The idea of if you can knock out their missiles in the silos, knock out their submarines and their bombers, then you could protect yourself from a retaliatory strike. Yeah, but you need to do it first. Yep, and to do it first, uh, you needed to have intelligence that the other side uh, was going to do it, and. Um, you need to be good intelligence, right? I mean, yeah. so let's take a step back because that's a great segue to talk about an operation that some of our listeners may have heard of, but others maybe have not. Operation Rion. Is this I really? This is the underpinning mm -hmm. of this nuclear war scare. Can you walk us through Operation Rion? Sure. So it's you might a lot of people see it spelled Operation Ryan, but 
Ryan, <coughs> R-Y-A-N, but it's Raketno Yadernaya Napadenia, and, uh, and that essentially means nuclear missile attack. And um, it all sometimes there's a V in front of it, which means um, uh, surprise. And this is a very large intelligent op operation um, that the Soviet Union under Andropov, before he was Gensec, at the time he was head of the KGB, started in, I believe, April 1979. Um, and this is corroborated with uh, corroborated from documents from the archives of uh, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria. Uh, and most importantly, uh, now East Germany, now the German Stasi archives are open. Uh, and what this was, was a huge ramp up of human intelligence to detect Ryan, a nuclear missile attack. So the Soviets tasked their intelligence forces and all of their Warsaw Pact allies to go and find and report on an upcoming nuclear attack from the enemy, um, which is startling. Um, most people that have written about this um, have said that, well, we didn't really, we lived in the West uh, and we didn't really think that they were going to launch a nuclear attack, but we reported it anyways, and it was essentially driven by Moscow uh, for a variety of, well, driven by Moscow, and it didn't matter um, what the agents believed, it mattered what they reported. Um, Oleg Gordievsky, a famous spy, um, coined this the intelligence cycle, where uh, they report intelligence that their bosses tell them to report, and their bosses misuse it, and it just goes on forever, making things worse. Because they weren't they weren't allowed to add an analysis to this. They basically just had to report the information as they saw it, and let people back right. in Moscow make the analysis. So, so the, so, um, the new documents that have come out have said that have listed these two hundred indicators. So some of them are the amount of blood in blood banks, or um, or what religious leaders were doing. Uh, was anything happening to the Constitution and Declaration of Independence in the U.S. archive? Was like actually, physically, were yes. they being moved? Or, so yeah. Soviet spies were tasked to watch, and if they were moved, they were supposed to report back. And believe it or not, um, all of these indicators went into a computer, which in 1979 to 83 was a big deal. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's... A bit bizarre to think about, but it and and but uh, it was a dangerous and bizarre time. Well, the foundation of all of this is that the Soviets. What we learn later on is the Soviets truly believe that Ronald Reagan thought that a nuclear war could potentially be won, or that his leadership thought. There's the only way you do this is if you think there's a legitimate chance of nuclear war. It's is that they uh, that Reagan was a different animal than any other politician and. Um, it shows, I think, the impact that rhetoric can have on a situation. Um, I think he c clearly underestimated the impact his reg his rhetoric had, uh, and the Soviets uh, were very scared by that. Um, but the second point is is that uh, there is another argument, and this and this was made by the U.S. intelligence community, that the Soviet Union knew that it was losing the Cold War. It, we talked about it couldn't do another merry-go-round on the arms go race. Uh, and they thought that either they would eventually lose in the long race or they could quit the race and, uh, and perhaps uh, go for it. Um, and they portrayed this thinking uh, on the West as well.
If you've been listening to SpyCast lately, you've heard me talk about Mack Weldon, perhaps even more than you'd hope to. The truth is, and the reason I'm continuing to talk about them, no matter what store-bought brands you've been using in the past, Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. and will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, shorts, polos, and sweatpants that you'll ever own. As I've also mentioned before, the cool thing about this company is that they are constantly growing. If you went online to check out the Mack Weldon after hearing me first read about them a couple months ago and then never looked again, you'll be amazed at how much more they now have to offer. Things like their Vesper Polo, a perfect product for SpyCast fans. The Vesper Polo has a design inspired by James Bond. It has advanced fabrics and a collar that will always keep its shape. This polo shirt is unlike any other. The Vesper Polo is even named after the company's favorite Bond girl from Casino Royale, Vesper Lind. And as things are finally beating the cool off a bit, there's nothing better than the Mack Weldon Ace Hoodie and Pant. Made for life beyond the 9 to 5, the Ace Hoodie and Pant was designed with a refined fit, super soft French terry, and details that go the extra mile. They were made to be worn everywhere. And then there are everyday socks that treat your feet right. Sharply designed and tech-enhanced, these stay put as you keep moving. A cushioned footbed makes for an undeniably comfortable wear, no matter how much pavement you're pounding. And for fans of the discreet, there are the no-show socks, which stay out of sight and slip free with smart design and built-in gel strip technology. A seamless toe and extra cushioned footbed keep things comfortable, ideal for sneakers and for dress shoes. Of course, Mack Weldon will always have the try-on guarantee, hassle-free returns, and free shipping on orders over $50. Mack Weldon is reinventing men's basics, smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. So go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. That's MacWeldon.com. Get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. So let's talk about 1983 because we're looking at again, psychological profiles of what the Soviets thought. And I think it's important to understand that you didn't necessarily have the healthiest Soviet leadership at the time. The joke was that the Kremlin doubled as an old folks' home in a funeral parlor. And in drop-off in 1983, who had become general secretary after Brezhnev had died and arguably Brezhnev for the last five years or not longer, didn't even know who he was or where he was. So then drop-off comes in, he's barely healthy himself. He basically spent 1983 in the hospital, leading from a hospital bed. How did this affect Soviet decision-making? Because who's in charge at this point? You have somebody, I guess Andropov had massive, like many Russians, massive kidney failure and other things wrong with him. It's not like he could be level-headed and clear-headed all the time. So the, the interesting part is, is that when Andropov assumed power, the U.S. Um, intelligence community, and I have a document in here, I think they, uh, they uh, one, the briefing said that he had the best grasp on geopolitics since any leader since Lenin. And um, there were rumors that he liked to drink cognac and listen to jazz. And uh, there were citations saying that since he had all the intelligence, he actually knew the true condition of the Soviet economy. So there was some initial optimism, but he falls ill immediately. Um, and he did still rule from his hospital bedside, um, despite him not being at Pulitzer sessions. He had a grasp on power until about the end. Um, but the the center of power focused on him, Gromyko, and Ustinov in in the Politburo. Um, and uh, uh, someone told me that uh, Gromyko they thought was the absolute guarantor of no uh, nuclear war from the Soviets because he, uh, as um, with all of his time in the West, knew like the other agents that it wasn't realistic that the U.S. would launch a bolt from the blue. Right. 
you also mentioned KAL 007. I think that, again, anyone who was alive during that time will certainly remember this. It was this major news story, but those who weren't may not understand. You can think about it today. If a an airliner, you talk about these, you know, uh, Malaysian airliners that get shot down by the Russians or the Ukrainians, whomever, that's problematic. But KAL 007 had a sitting U.S. congressman on it. And the kind of crazy that would happen today, if that were the case, is what happened in 1983. I mean, this was something that really shook American politics. Yeah, um, and <laughs> while, you all, while you should always read the footnotes of the book, I have, uh, I think, a real revelation in the footnotes of this that I, haven't, I don't think is public knowledge, and it's from a declassified National Security Agency history. Um, the reason that, according to the NSA's history, the reason that the Soviets shot down KL-007 was that it, they actually thought there was a genuine spy plane in the area, and there was, <laughs> and that was not disclosed, I think, essentially until now. Um, and President Reagan and Secretary of State Schultz knew this and were briefed on it. Um, and according to the NSA history, uh, they chose to ramp up the fervor, as mm -hmm. you say, um, and not disclose that the Soviets genuinely made a terrible mistake and that they were trying to shoot down a spy plane, uh, but they did not mention its existence or that uh, this spying in some way had contributed, prob uh, certainly not the, uh, had contributed, contributed to this loss of life. Um, and it was a huge incident. Mm -hmm. uh, and really, that's what really set off the danger of uh, the 1983 war scare. That was in September. April right. Archer was in November. Well, let's talk about something also that happened that year that mistakes that could have possibly caused World War III, even not including Abel Archer. And that's uh, someone who should be a household name as a hero, and that's Petrov, uh, who a relatively young junior officer, uh, essentially working at the Soviet version of NORAD, who picks up an American nuclear strike and then does nothing about it. Thankfully, because if he had, probably would have been World War III. Uh, that's a story that came out relatively recently. A lot of people don't know a whole lot about it. Uh, what impact did this have on the Soviets' confidence in their ability to detect a real incoming attack? Well, they knew that their satellites, they could not really rely on them. Um, they knew that their radars, they could not really rely on. Um, Griffin cruise missiles flew low enough and slow enough and could reach Moscow, but could not be detected by radar. So they knew that they were vulnerable. Um, and this sense of vulnerability fed to Rian and the urge for uh, human intelligence and fed to the fear that they could be decapitated by a first strike by these brand new um, missiles that were just set to be installed in Western Europe. You talk about indicators that we were looking for indicators. And we'd also begun at this time to do things that actually looked like indicators. People might remember the fact that there was a, a Marine barracks bombing in Beirut in 1983. Well, the response to that was to dramatically heighten military security around the world, which is one of these indicators. And then the Grenada invasion had a really interesting side effect. Mm -hmm. that nothing, I mean, yes, they were concerned about us invading Grenada, which was a so uh, at least a Cuban client state, but it had a, a very different and unintended consequence oh. as well. And I'll talk about that, but first we talked about, um, and uh, the past isn't past, if with the 
current Russian psyops and provo provocations against NATO forces. If you flip the script, the U.S. invasion of Grenada has many similarities to the uh, Russian invasion or support of Syria. And I, I did a little thing on, on this on foreign policy, but when a country invades a country in its sphere of influence that it thinks sh should be under its control, sometimes they put in the little green men, and the U.S. Yeah. does it too, including in, in Grenada. Um, but uh, it also had the side effect of a huge increase in ciphered communications, probably that the Soviets couldn't read, um, that was in all likelihood reported uh, communications between Great Britain and the United States, which was a defined Rion indicator, which in all likelihood would have been reported as uh, something that could be misconstrued right. as evidence that a nuclear attack is about to occur on the Soviet Union. And they may have thought that these were coordinating communications between the British and the Americans. In fact, they're the British and Americans yelling at each other, essentially, because yes. they didn't agree with our invasion of Grenada. Yes. Which yeah. is, I guess, fun and ironic. And, and it was a sovereign territory of Great Britain. Yeah, I should it, say that. In 2016, it's fun and ironic. And in, in 1983, it was probably very terrifying. So let's talk about Abel Archer itself. This is not sure. some small little war game. This is not uh, some kind of uh, brief, let's send a division into Poland. This was a massive, yeah. massive war game. That wasn't just by itself, too. It's part of this broader yeah. thing that had happened throughout most of 1983 yeah, already. Uh, let's, yeah. uh, let's ramp up the weapons we're putting. Let's put missiles that can hit Russia within 10 minutes. Let's put missiles that are undetectable. Oh, and by the way, uh, let's make our war games way more realistic, too. Um, so here's how the world ends, yeah. according to Abel Archer 83. Um, the Soviet Union has a, has a death in the leadership. Imagine that. Extremely realistic scenario. Um, and the, the Politburo is in a mess. Um, the, it tries to um, beef up its clients in the Middle East for oil, and it loses losing money. Then Yugoslavia, one of its quasi-clients, uh, accepts aid from the West, asks for military and financial aid from the West. Um, and the Soviet Union, according to the scenario in Able Archer 83, thought that if Yugoslavia went to the West, which was a nine-aligned country, but um, they feared that it would lose its Warsaw Pact buffer states or allies. So it invades Yugoslavia. Then after that's essentially the first chess move that you can't come back from, uh, it eventually uh, invades um, Finland and Norway, and eventually a ground war in Europe begins. Um, uh, next, uh, the Soviets go through what uh, was always has been long suspected. Uh, Soviets and their forces go through the Fulda Gap in East Germany, uh, and NATO cannot stop them. Mm -hmm. uh, so in this scenario, uh, NATO requests to launch a nuclear signal against pre-selected fi fixed targets. So uh, in April Archer 83, U.S. launched the first nuke. Um, and it doesn't say what target it was. Someone told me before that in the scenarios that he set in with Reagan, it was always Kiev. And he told me that once he joked to Reagan, oh, okay, the Soviets are launching just one nuke back at us at Boston, but don't worry, it's just a signal. Uh, it shows how, shows how absurd it is. Yeah. Um, but this nuclear signaling didn't work, and uh, the NATO, during Naval Archer 83, practiced requesting permission from the heads of state of all of the NATO countries to launch a full-on nuclear strike against Russia, um, and they did it. And according to the declassified documents, while they were doing this, they were um, moving NATO bases, uh, they were using, they were taxing out airplanes with fake warheads, 
They were using new encryption for the communications. They were simulating um, a countdown to all the DEF CON levels, and it was a very realistic exercise. Of course, I mean, shifting commands to nuclear war command headquarters and stuff like that too. That would be a huge indicator. You have think. these Rian agents that had even saying penetrated, I think is too much, that were watching and reporting back, uh, even though they probably knew it was an exercise. And even if it was an exercise, um, military doctrine has the risk of masking or maskirova. Uh, uh, and these reports fed Rian, and the Soviets were very startled. It was, it was a very realistic, even if nothing came of it, it was a chillingly realistic nuclear release exercise. This is exactly how it would be if it was a real attack. I mean, this is the, you know, basically they're going through the exact steps they would go through if this was going to be the beginning of World War III. On the one hand, it's good to be prepared. Right. On the other hand, um, there's evidence uh, that earlier uh, you, the U.S. bent over backwards to not uh, provide confidence-building measures to the Soviets so that they could watch or make them let them know that it was just a drill to tamper down the tensions in the high terrible atmosphere during the the second cold war in 1983 this likely did not happen well there's a lot of people that have argued we talked about the debate that the last couple decades back and forth about how seriously the soviets took this because there's so many of these exercises but this one really was not even remotely a routine i mean the radio silences and you talk about the fact that they're talking open in the clear, which means unencrypted radio, and they're talking about nuclear strikes mm -hmm. in the clear and open. I mean, these aren't things that had happened before. Right. Well, one declassified action act after action report had a Air Force, I believe, lieutenant saying, uh, I'm really worried that we were talking about, uh, they called it slips of the tongue, of nuclear strikes over open radio. That could be misconstrued. So people knew. Mm -hmm. um, in the... There was um, someone doing the relay slips of the messaging, and he said at first it was pretty difficult um, because you have to send so many slips, but then you start saying, order this unit to launch, order this unit to prepare for launch, and then you said that uh, you start thinking, what if this is real, uh, and then you start getting worried. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the danger is there. Uh, and. Well, it's, the Soviet reaction is almost as though they believed it was real. I mean, they, they don't just kind of sit back and watch this. Right. So there's, there's the point. Um, the biggest point is that the reason that the Able Archer War Scare is the Able Archer War Scare is because the Soviet Union, in response, readied its nuclear forces in unprecedented faction, fashion. And that's now documented by the evidence that was previously kept secret from the public. Um, but the, the, re, the reason that Reagan called it really scary was because Soviet bombers in Poland and East Germany on the ground were ready. Um, there were, it was an unpre unprecedented amount of re reconnaissance flights. Um, according to one report, uh, all other flights were grounded probably so that those planes could be used for an attack if nuclear war actually happened. Um, and the Soviets uh, got we're ready to fight a nuclear right. war. One thing that I always found the most chilling was that their top, their, the head of their nuclear weapons program, the head of their nuclear forces, was actually sent to a bunker outside of Moscow to essentially write out the nuclear war. And the second thing for me is that we talk about the SS-20s. We had no idea where they were during that time. It's not like if the Soviets wanted to pick, pick up a fight because of uh, mis you know, mis 
construing what was going on that we could take out their SS-20s. We had no idea where they were. Right. Um, and their submarines, for that matter. Yeah. Um, and even if you do know where, even if the, the, the Dane, it's, you do not, even a one in 100 chance was what was said after the Cuban Missile Crisis um, is far too high a chance when you're talking about all-out nuclear war. There's another unheralded hero we already talked about, Petrov, and it's an American Air Force general. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lieutenant General, three-star general, Leonard Perutz. Mm-hmm. What, what did he do that made this actually not turn into World well, War III? He, he was also more than an Air Force general. He became a spy. He became the head of the DIA. Um, and uh, essentially, uh, it's still murky because the official account of this, despite... Um, the key, do- the key, many key documents being declassified. Uh, the CIA still and DIA still have not declassified this to me, despite my request. They're still pending. We're still fighting. Um, but his full account is still officially a secret. But what we do know is that he, in the face of this huge Soviet escalation, he did nothing. Um, so this is one of the cases where doing nothing was the right thing. Um, so it's easy to imagine with the Soviets essentially putting their forces on hair trigger, an Air Force general saying, well, we've got to match them. Um, and you can see possibly the idea of launch on warning, Rian, preemption could have come into play. But uh, according to the definitive summer, the, the best summary we have of this incident, Perutz decided not to do anything. Then, um, even perhaps more importantly, he within internal... Um, chains uh, expressed his disquiet and danger that Able Archer 83 could have caused a nuclear war. Um, oh, and, and, and this wasn't something you said it was the right thing to do, but it wasn't the by the book thing to do. This uh, wasn't, if he was going by what you should have done as a three star Air Force general, he should have reacted. And essentially, he goes against his guidance, his training, and does nothing in that case. Uh, and I think the, the quote is, uh, Either out of ignorance or out of luck, he did nothing. Yeah. And that's what the report says. A, a lot of people who have listened to us understand some cognitive biases that, that we run into in doing intelligence work. And mirror imaging seems to be one of the most extraordinary ones here. And to me, one of the most frightening things about this is that even after this happened, we didn't take their concerns seriously. The CIA specifically, it was one of the real reasons that there is debate about this. They said, oh, it's no big deal. They never would have acted that way. Uh, they never would assume that we were going to launch. And this is really it's about as textbook definition of mirror imaging as you can get. Right. Um, the, the key report, again, says that just because you know that your country will never cause World War III doesn't mean that the other side assumes that. So definition mirror imaging. And there is a real intelligence battle that, um, well, uh, so first there were two secret... Um, CIA reports that essentially said that despite all of these actions, there's no real danger. Um, and then the other side wrote a memo to the president um, that said, well, actually, uh, there was unprecedented Soviet reaction, and these reactions aren't blustering, and they have high military costs, so we think there may be danger, or enough danger that we need to look at it. And, and Reagan saw this and was really scared. I argue in the book that uh, it... Uh, expedited the part of him that was a nuclear abolitionist leading to Reykjavik Um, and then there's the historical battle and kind of the declassification battle Mm -hmm. Um, all of the 
CIA estimates that said that there was no danger were declassified very early. The estimates that said that there were danger were declassified a decade later. Um, so it's a little bit of cooking the books. And again, uh, there's still evidence um, and redactions um, hiding that it may be even more dangerous than we currently know. And you, may, you make the cookbooking argument that you know, the reason for that may be we still wanted to actually deploy these weapons to Europe. And if it looked like the deploying of those weapons were going to start World War III... Well, and, and I think you can make the argument that there are a lot of pieces and a lot of political capital and a lot of money was made to make new Pershing II missiles and maybe missiles after that. And a lot of people, and, and you can make the argument that maybe they genuinely believe the only way to beat Soviets or Russians is has more, 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 quicker, quicker, mm -hmm. quicker missiles. And if you do that, um, the fact that Abel Archer put the world uh, unacceptably close to accidental nuclear war is not, a, it's not, a, it's not evidence you want in the public domain. And you mentioned that Reagan at least took this seriously. Uh, seems like a combination of this and what listeners have heard of me say this before, perhaps, that the thing that turned me into who I am today was at seven years old, my parents let me stay up later than I should have to watch a TV movie, the most watched TV movie in history called The Day After, and it screwed me up forever. And I study nuclear weapons because of it today. That seemed to have a profound impact, combined almost exactly timeline-wise with Able Archer 83. It did. It changed Reagan's perception altogether. It did. Uh, and he, he watched a special screening uh, before... The timeline is still slightly murky because some of the key documents are still classified, but mm -hmm. I sus uh, you can make the argument um, that he watched a special screening of that before he would have found out of this danger of Able Archer. He wrote in his diary that the day after left me greatly depressed. Um, one of the few times he was not up, uplift, uh, optimistic mm -hmm. in his diary. Um, and you know another movie he also saw? War Games. Oh, yeah. So uh, he's a cinephile, and uh, they had an effect on him, um, a, big, a big effect. Uh, he, he also talked about around the same time doing an actual, I, I, I believe the evidence shows that he kept putting it off, but he finally did the actual nuclear briefing. And they say, Mr. President, put in these codes, and he puts in these codes, and they say, okay, Mr. President, uh, the missiles have launched. Uh, well, learning about the PSYOP has to be incredibly, you know, humbling or, or you know, more... Uh, PSYOP is, is the, the single integrated operational plan. The, the, the push the button, as we use now, talking about, you know, politicians and the power they have. Essentially, it's the war plan to take out millions and millions and millions of people. Uh, and the briefing had to have been one of those things that someone like Reagan would have taken to heart. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, if if you read his own writings and his own in his diary, you can see that the risk of nuclear war. And he writes that um, it took me a long time to realize that the Soviets might actually think that we would hurl nuclear weapons at them. I had always thought that uh, America was a force for good, and I thought the Soviets knew this. But if they have this twisted idea, writing after Able Archer 83, mm -hmm. that the U.S. would in fact be a nuclear aggressor, I got to get a Soviet leader in the room with me and talk with him, is what he wrote. Right. I guess it doesn't matter all that much what the Americans thought. It really matters what the Soviets thought, because they're the ones that would have reacted to this. And it seems like the Soviets took this much more seriously than at least the CIA was doing right after, because they seem to have reformed Rion 
after Able Archer 83 to at least they knew how close they'd gotten they wanted to make sure that there were better ways of of reporting indicators there's evidence of this yeah. um, primarily from the Stasi archives um, and some quotes from uh, the man without a face the great spy Marcus Wolf uh, saying um, we had to make sure that what we we're reporting was actually what was happening on the ground not what people and I think he meant the Soviets believed was happening right. on the ground uh, and there was other talks of uh, reforming Rion though it con- <laughs> ironically it did continue it wouldn't be the first uh, intelligence <laughs> program to continue uh, after it should be dead uh, until 1989 um, and the actual we have the actual Rion report Rion nuclear missile attack reporting on the actual destruction of these Pershing two missiles wow. ironically yeah so let me let me ask you which, final, was neg- which was negotiated between Reagan and Gorbachev and essentially wiped right. out the class of missiles. The INF Treaty, right? Yeah. Yes, that was that caused the danger during Able Archer eighty three. So let me ask you, what's next? Are there pieces still missing that you've mentioned? This little bit have to be classified. Are we going to look at a part two of this book in in a couple years where? There are things out there that you're trying to fight to get your hands on? Uh, well, I mean, I, this is just the first step. Yeah. I mean, there's still great books being written about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, but, uh, sure. On the, uh, well, first of all, I, I hope to get uh, more people, the, the, the Perutz, or that knew what Perutz was doing, to talk and talk, cite some of the missileers in Able Archer mm-hmm. in the book. Um, and there's more. Um, but uh, the report of why exactly um, General Perutz was so concerned is still a secret. Um, all of the information between of communications between the British and the United States, including this spy, Oleg Gordievsky, who was probably the West's best human source mm-hmm. um, during Able Archer 83, uh, the bulk of that is still classified. Um, there anything having to do with NSA surveillance of the Soviet missiles um, and uh, some references of a general alert not since, so we see the line a Soviet general alert not seen since World War II and then the rest is blanked out, that's still classified (laughs) Um, so there's there's still still a lot of stuff to fight to get um, out, no longer secret Well this is a great first step for those who want to know about uh, this incredible period in American history and world history that uh, you may hear me argue, and I think it got us closer to complete annihilation than even 1962 did just because of the amount of destructive power that both sides had. But that's for another day. I got one last quote. One on last this. quote. Bring it on. According to the NSA history, um, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviets placed their forces on an extraordinarily high state of alert. Um, but its offensive forces avoided assuming the highest readiest stage as if to ensure that Kennedy understood that the USSR would not launch first. That's the NSA during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, The part of the documents about Able Archer 83 that would explain that are still secret. Yeah, they seem to stop right before that real qualifying phrase there at the very end. We'd like to thank our great sponsor, Mack Weldon, for continuing to support SpyCast. Remember, you can get 20% off at MacWeldon.com by using the promo code SPYCAST. That's MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code SPYCAST and get 20% off today. So I, I highly recommend this book. It's not just because I'm a nuclear wonk, because I think this really does open people's eyes to uh, what, for many of us, uh, was a moment during our lifetimes that could have ended our lifetimes. 
The, the author is Nate Jones. The book is Able Archer 83, The Secret History of the NATO Exercise that Almost Triggered Nuclear War. It is out now. Uh, I advise you to go get it. It's great. The cool thing about this book is that, yeah, you have what Nate has written, but he also has included these original documents. So you don't have to take his word for it. You can dive into these documents for yourself uh, and see what all the hubbub is about. So, Nate, thank you so much for joining us on SpyCast. We appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. That's fun. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.